This is Jim Hughes with AFIO Now. We are a program of recorded interviews with former U.S. intelligence officers and those who write about them. Today, I have a very interesting guest. He's been with us before. His name is Steve Fogel. Steve is a former journalist with the Washington Post for over two decades. He covered um, the fall of the Berlin Wall, the first Gulf War, military operations in Somalia, Rwanda, uh, the Balkans, and Iraq. Uh, the stories that he helped to write uh, for the Washington Post for the uh, Afghan War figured in uh, their uh, publication that uh, was um, <clears throat> a candidate for the finalists for the Pulitzer Prize in 2002. And he also covered um, the 9-11 attacks on the Pentagon. But uh, most relevant for today, he's the author of a fascinating book called Betrayal in Berlin. We had Steve on uh, last November, and he told us the story of the Berlin Tunnel, which if you haven't seen it, it's just an amazing story. But that was only half of the story. And so I'm delighted to tell you that Steve is back today to tell us the other half about the infamous um, British spy, George Blake. Steve, welcome back to Afio Now. Thank you for having me again, Jim. I enjoyed it. Okay. Well, over to you. Go ahead and um, tell us about George Blake. Sure. Yeah. Um, we didn't get to talk about him as much as um, we would have liked last time, uh, just because of his... Uh, uh, well, of course, the tunnel is, is kind of an epic tale itself, but he's George Blake uh, had a very epic life. And in fact, uh, as, as I'm sure most of the viewers know, he he only died uh, about a year ago at age 98. And uh, I was uh, I was able to talk to him um, for my research. Uh, and I'll, we can go into that later. But uh, I wanted to start with just uh going over a bit of his background, you know, where, where George Blake came from, uh, because I think it's important for understanding what would happen eventually. Uh, and that, that story um, uh, begins uh, back at the end of uh, World War One. Let me uh, share some PowerPoint slides that I have for the occasion. Uh, he was born in 1922 as uh, George Behar. Uh, his father was a uh, actually a, a Sephardic Jew uh, from Constantinople originally, who um, had ended up fighting for the British army during World War I. And at the end of the war, he was um, uh, stationed in Holland, helping to uh, uh, demobilize uh, the, the British uh, army. And George uh, or Albert Behar, the father, met a Dutch woman uh, and they, they married. She was a, a Dutch Protestant. And their first child was uh, was George, uh, born uh, in 1922, and and Albert actually named him after uh, King George of of England. He was he was a, a diehard British patriot, and uh, as it happens, George was born on November 11th, which was Armistice Day. So, in a fit of patriotism, he named his son after the the king. And Young George was uh, was raised uh, near the town of Rotterdam. His father owned a um, a leather factory where he he made gloves for the workmen who, who worked at the, the ports of Rotterdam and, and other Dutch ports. His father, uh, though, died when uh, George was uh, was pretty young at age thirteen. He um, apparently he had been uh, exposed to mustard gas during World War One, and he had lung problems and died of lung cancer. And uh, George's mother 
was not particularly well-to-do, and uh, they were left with a lot of debts. But before dying, the father had recommended that she send George to go um, live with his relatives in, in Egypt. His sister was married to a very wealthy family in Cairo, and um, they could see to his schooling. So at age uh, 13, uh, young George was put on a, a cargo ship and sailed by himself to uh, to Cairo. And um, he essentially, I, mean, I think I said before that he, he lives this, this early life that's uh, part, um, you know, a thousand and one Arabian nights, uh, part Grimm's fairy tale, part uh, great escape. But uh, at this point, uh, he, he goes to live with the Curiel family and they live on an island in the Nile. They, in a huge Italian-style palazzo with 17 rooms and Nubian servants in white robes with red sashes serving meals and, um, you know, just a, a, a gorgeous setting. And uh, he's sent to a, a French school in Cairo and later an English school, goes back to Holland uh, on the summers to, you know, visit with relatives, but is there in Egypt for three years. And the family, uh, uh, the Curiel family was quite interesting. Uh, one of the cousins who was uh, of college age at the time sort of took uh, George under his, uh, his wing. And he used to take him to the, the real slums of, of Cairo and the outskirts of Cairo, where the, uh, the young uh, boy was exposed to some of the haves and have nots here he is living in a very um, wealthy setting. And he, he sees these scenes of poverty that, uh, were for him uh, pretty shocking. And uh, there could have been some influence going on here with Henri because Henri uh, was studying at the time at Cairo University and he would uh, later found the uh, uh, Egyptian Communist Party. So um, while young George at this point is considers himself a very religious boy and he's uh, certainly not a communist, uh, he, he did have some some interesting uh, influences at that age. He, he sent back to um, Holland uh, as World War II is just starting and the, the, uh, the relatives in, in Holland didn't want to send him back to Egypt at that time. There's concern about U-boats uh, shooting, uh, uh, sinking ships. So uh, George is uh, back in Holland just in time for the, the Nazis to invade Holland in uh, May of 1940. And he's in Rotterdam with his grandmother when the um, when the uh, dive bombers are attacking Ro uh, Rotterdam and turn the city into this blazing inferno. And they they're hiding underneath the, the kitchen table with pots on their heads. And when he emerges, Rotterdam is is completely in flames. And uh, this was uh, you know pretty traumatic event, obviously for for all concerned. And in the chaos of the the days that followed, um, because the 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 Behar family holds British passports. They are suddenly evacuated from, from Holland. The, the, the British embassy is able to get uh, uh, a number of its citizens out. But uh, on the day that that evacuation occurs, uh, George is off in the country uh, visiting relatives. So his mother, when he gets back to um, his home, his mother and his sister have abruptly left. And... Um, they are hoping that George is on the, on one of these ships, but he's not. And uh, by the time he learns what's happened, uh, he's basically there on his own uh, with uh, various uncles and aunts. And they they hide him out in uh, the countryside for a while because he's subject to arrest. Uh, but it's not too long before 
um, the local authorities who are now working for the Nazis come knocking on the door. And he's, he's sent to an internment camp that's run by the SS um, for uh, several months. But because he's, he's so young at this point, he's, I think he's uh, at this point 17 years old, he is uh, actually released um, because they decide that they're not going to hold anyone younger than 18. But he kind of figures he's living on borrowed time. Um, and it's not too long before, uh, before he begins working for the uh, volunteering for the Dutch resistance. He, uh, even though he's at this point 17, he looks much younger than that. And uh, he spends, um, uh, he, he's taken on as a courier and he spends a lot of time bicycling around Holland, delivering packages, messages, flyers, that sort of thing. And um, he has a couple of close calls with the, with the Nazis, but um he gets by because of uh, how young he looks. But as his 18th birthday um, approaches, he he figures that um, he's really exposed. He's really, uh, because he's also half Jewish, half British, he figures he has every reason to, to maybe uh, try to escape and get to, to England. So he approaches some um, resistance figures in the Netherlands, and they um, in turn slip him across the border into occupied France and uh, where the French resistance helps him uh, over the course of several weeks to work, work his way down to uh, so-called um, to, to free France uh, outside of the, the Vichy run uh, um, portion of, of France during uh, World War II. Um, and then he's, he tries to make it across the, uh, the Spanish border. And just at this time, the, uh, the Allied invasion of North Africa uh, takes place. And Hitler, uh, at this point, decides he's going to seize all of France. George has to uh, escape across the Pyrenees to get into Spain uh, with the help of some guides. And uh, once he, he makes it to Spain, as soon as he's across the border, he's uh, detained by soldiers of Franco's government. Franco, of course, is uh, he's neutral, but uh, he's he's an ally uh, or friendly, at least, to uh, to Hitler. So George, along with a number of other detainees from different countries who've made their way to, to Spain, are held in one of Franco's prisons for uh, several months. And finally, the British government is able to negotiate the release of a number of their citizens. And and George sails to Scotland, where he soon is reunited with his mother and sister. His mother is working as a housekeeper. Uh, she, incidentally, has uh, recently changed her name from Behar to Blake. She wants to adopt a more Anglo-sounding name. So he is now a George Blake. And it's not too long before he gets bored. You know, he's, he's had a pretty active uh, couple of years there. And being in uh, in London and not being involved in the in the fight, so to speak, um, he finds a bit uh, dull. So he's not before too long. He uh, volunteers. He signs up for the uh, the Royal Navy, and initially he's being trained as a um, as a diver. And this is something he's not well suited for at all. He passes out uh, on his training dives. And fortunately for him, anyway, he had a um, a commander who recognizes that this young man uh, speaks several languages and he has some potential as a uh, intelligence officer. So uh, unbeknownst to, to George, he is recommended to uh, the secret intelligence service and uh, they interview him and um, he doesn't even realize he's, he's being considered for this position. But after a couple of weeks, they take him on as a, as an officer in the, in the SIS. 
So he's, um, because he speaks fluent Dutch, he's assigned to the, the Dutch section and uh, helps the, um, the agents who are being sent to Holland uh, to, to spy on Nazi positions. This is uh, around the time of Operation Market Garden and uh, after after D-Day when uh, the Allied armies are moving into the Netherlands. And uh, he helps uh, prepare agents who are being parachuted in to Holland so they can radio back positions. Uh, not too, of course, within a year of that, the uh, uh, Nazi government collapses, Hitler is dead, and uh, uh, Blake is sent to uh, the Netherlands to deal with some of the aftermath. Most people who have been recruited into SIS during the, the war years kind of return to their civilian lives, but uh, Blake found he kind of had a taste for it. So he applies to stay on, and um, he is, uh, they, they agree to keep him on. He's sent to, uh, to occupy Germany, where ostensibly he's supposed to keep his eye on prisoners from U-boat captains who, had, um, who were still being kept in a camp um, to make sure there were no Nazi sympathizers among them who were trying to, you know, restore the the Nazi rule. But his real uh, task was to recruit among these U-boat uh, captains to find Germans who might be willing to spy on the the Soviet presence that has established itself in Eastern Germany as 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 part of the Allied um, uh, the Four Powers Agreement, uh, dividing Germany. So he's, uh, he soon has a couple of networks of uh, German spies operating in Soviet-occupied uh, Eastern Germany. And he does a good job at this, and he's soon taken on uh, as a permanent uh, hire by SIS. He's sent to Cambridge to uh, study Russian, because uh, he already speaks uh, about four languages, but they, they want him to, to focus on the Soviets. So he, he learns Russian at Cambridge. He's also... Um, has time to um, uh, read up on Marxism, and he once again he's he kind of finds a certain appeal to what he's reading by his later account. Up to this point, he's been a very religious young man, you know, brought up as a Dutch Protestant. But uh, while he's at Cambridge, he he kind of has a falling out with religion. He spends times in uh, in some of the cathedrals there thinking about this, and by the time he leaves Cambridge, he's decided he's no longer a Christian. Therefore. By his account, he has kind of a vacuum in his in his mind. So around this time, he is sent. He's hoping to go to the Middle East because he has a fascination having grown up in, in Egypt. But instead, to his disappointment, he's sent to um, to South Korea in 1949, where he's the the chief of station of a very small uh, office that the British have, have just set up in the recently divided uh, Korean Peninsula, and. Um, He's given the task of trying to uh, recruit basically from Vladivostok, the, the Russian seaport that's uh, near North Korea. And he finds this a very difficult job and has no success. And, and he's, he's given a stern um, review by one of uh, the SIS officers in that region who happens to be very down on foreigners. And, and Blake at this time begins to feel a certain um, resentment that because of his foreign upbringing, he's not being considered a fully British by uh, some of his um, uh, his colleagues. And this, too, I think, uh, plays in what, what will eventually happen. So Korea, though, turns out to be not quite the dull place he's thinking it's going to be because, of course, in 1950, uh, North Korea invades and takes over the, the South. And Great Britain uh, begins, to, uh, instead of staying a neutral 
sides with the U.S. And um, so the British delegation in um, Seoul is taken prisoner. And Blake, along with uh, the rest of the diplomats and French diplomats as well, are brought up uh, to a, a prison camp in northern North Korea. And they undergo this horrendous death march. This is in the uh, fall and uh, late fall of, of 1950. And uh, the Siberian winter kicks in as they're uh, marching on foot with, along with a number of American GIs who've been captured to um, prison camps that are further away from, uh, from the, the fighting. And this is around the time that uh, MacArthur is uh, moving across the 38th parallel into North Korea. And uh, so the, the prisoners are being moved further back to stay away from um, that fighting. But the there's wild back and forth in that war. Blake tries to escape a couple of times, but he's um, he's recaptured. And then things settle down uh, after the Chinese intervention. <clears throat> and uh, Blake has a, a lot of free time along with the other prisoners. Uh, conditions improve for them somewhat. At some point during the, the three years he's held as a captive, the picture on the left there showing him uh, as, a, uh, uh, as a captive, he... Um, in discussions with uh, the, the head of the British delegation, who had also had some Marxist, not not sympathies, but he he felt that uh, the, the British Empire was on its last gasps, gasps essentially, and he thought that uh, that communism was going to be the wave of the future. And you know, Blake's a pretty impressionable guy. He uh, he seems to kind of absorb a lot of what he's um, what he hears from the people around him, and he's um, he views the uh, the uh, heavy Allied bombing of North Korea that's going on around him um, rather negatively. And at some point during this captivity, according to Blake's account, he makes the decision that he's uh, he's fighting on the wrong side. And he uh, slips a note one evening to the North Korean guards and asks if he can meet with uh, Soviet officials. And, uh, you know, some weeks later, a group of uh, Soviets come to the, the town of Manpo, where uh, uh, Blake and the, the rest of the diplomatic captives are being held. And these uh, Russians talk to all the prisoners one by one, but uh, the one they're most interested in is, uh, is Blake. And uh, during one of these meetings, uh, Blake makes the offer to, to spy for uh, the KGB. Now, you know, whether it happened the way that uh, uh, Blake outlines it in that uh, this was something he initiated, or whether it was something that the KGB, which who's monitoring these these camps, perhaps they saw him as some uh, someone who uh, might be susceptible to recruitment. Either way, it happened. the The end result is they they recruit someone who turns out to be a very committed ideological communist, and um, they then bide their time. Blake is is held for another two years uh, after this uh, this meeting before. The war approaches an end, and uh, British captives are sent back. And Blake goes back to hero's welcome uh, back to England, and uh, you know he's he's held in very high regard. His fellow captives say that he uh, he was one of the, the folks that kept them together. You know, led by example. And SIS uh, gives him a very cursory vetting. You know, they have him over for for tea, and uh, you know, cluck their tongues about uh, you know how tough the conditions were in Korea. And then, um, you know, they basically say, well, uh, good job. And, um, you know, we'd, uh, here's your next assignment. And he, um, George Blake 
Church, then in the summer of 1953, is given an assignment to a new section of, uh, of uh, SIS that's been established. It's called Section Y. And this is an office that's been created to exploit what's becoming a, a new and important source of information, which is basically electronic intercepts. And um, there's kind of a, a feeling in in, uh, in the intelligence world at this point that electronic intercepts are going to be the, the real wave of the future. There's not going to be as much need for human uh, intelligence. And, uh, you know, Blake, as he would Go on to show believes that while electronic intercepts were important, there was always going to be a need for the the human, the the man in the room, so to speak. And uh, nonetheless, uh, Blake is made the deputy of this new section. They need a, a Russian speaker, and they are actually getting quite a bit of information, primarily at that point from some tunnels that had been dug in Vienna, which is a divided city. And SIS Peter Lund there on the left had been. SIS man in Vienna, and he'd come up with this idea for digging tunnels in Vienna, small tunnels to tap into uh, Red Army communication lines that went from the Soviet sector into the Western sector. And this turns out to be quite successful. And uh, Peter Lund and also Bill Harvey, who uh, is sent in 1952 to be the chief of the CIA's base in Berlin, both have designs on doing the same thing on a much larger scale in Berlin. And Section Y in London is basically the office that, that is overseeing this. So they soon come up with this idea of uh, targeting cables down in the very southern tip of Berlin between the American sector and the Soviet sector. And they come up with a place where they, can, they think they can reach based on intelligence they've gathered from the East German telecommunications ministry, these cables that run underneath one of the, the East German highways. And uh, this operation is, is just a concept in, in 1953 when, when Blake is being sent to uh, Section Y. And he doesn't, he doesn't learn about the Berlin project initially, but he does learn about the Vienna operation because he's there um, going through these reports. There's a, um, a Soviet that he's working with in London by the name of Sergei Pondershov, who's been sent to um, to London to be specifically Blake's handler. He was uh, ostensibly, he was the cultural attache for the uh, Soviet embassy in London, but his real job was to handle Blake. He was uh, kind of a, a jovial guy. Um, he too spoke many languages. Uh, he'd done, uh, he'd worked in some counterintelligence roles in, um, in Moscow, but he was, he was unknown to British intelligence and they, they had great, uh, hopes and designs for for Blake, so they didn't want to have someone uh, who was known to uh, British to MI5 as as a uh, as a KGB guy. And so, Kondrashov, who's normally dealing with uh, you know the ballet troops that are coming to to London or the chess delegations, you know, getting tickets for sporting events for for visitors, that sort of thing. He's also meeting with Blake, usually near one of the uh, the tube underground stations uh, late at night. And Blake is able to pass on information about this Vienna operation at Kondrashov. And it's very, very interesting stuff. The Soviets had no idea about this this tunnel operation. And so Blake is, is proving his worth early on. And it's not too uh, long after that, that uh, Blake learns about this Berlin operation, which uh, he learns about it during a meeting in late December, 1953. This is actually before even a single 
spadeful of, of soil had been dug for the tunnel. But he is he is called into this meeting between the CIA and SIS to, to plan some of the details of the of the tunnel. And needless to say, he's the guy taking the notes. He finds this pretty interesting. So in uh, January of um, 1954, he meets with Kondrashov on a, a double-decker bus in London and you know, hands him a carbon copy of the notes he's taken at this meeting and you know gives him a quick uh, rundown on, on what is being planned. Kondrashov uh, is... Uh, you know, he just feels like uh, this incredible uh, sensation of of uh, urgency when he hears this, and they, feels that the the carbon copy he's carrying in his pocket now is is uh, burning a hole in his chest. And this information, of course, is sent on to uh, Moscow and uh, to Moscow Center. And but the decision is made pretty early on that um, nothing is going to be done by the KGB to interfere with this tunnel. the The idea being that uh, Blake is already proving himself so valuable that. If they if they do anything to stop this tunnel, Blake is going to be one of the very few people that know anything about it. So it's allowed to proceed for almost a year. It's it's uh, completed in in May of '55, and the Soviets manufacture a uh, discovery of it in uh, April of '56. But uh, as as I noted in our in our previous discussion about the tunnel, because the uh, KGB didn't uh, do anything to uh, stop the tunnel. They also didn't uh, plant any disinformation because that would have um, fingered Blake in a heartbeat because of the, the, the vast amount of, of actual information that was being uh, recorded by the, the British and Americans. The, the CIA and SIS get quite a bit out of the tunnel for, for over a year. Once the, dis- the, the tunnel is discovered in April of 56, you know, Blake has to lay... Um, Quite low. He's he, he's been given a, a advance warning that this is going to happen. So he kind of I, I should have mentioned earlier that uh, that Blake was actually transferred to Berlin in uh, in May of 1955, just as the Berlin Tunnel was was getting operational. And ironically, um, because he's now in Berlin, he actually knows less about the tunnel than he did when he was back in London. Because now he doesn't have a need to know about the tunnel. So he's working for Peter Lund, who's the station chief in Berlin, and. And Lund loves Blake uh, because he seems to be a real go-getter. And um, he uh, very effectively um, is able to recruit a Soviet official who uh, uh, has a lot of access to uh, Soviet economic detail and, you know, works in Moscow, but often is often visiting Berlin. And, and Peter Lung is, is just uh, very impressed with, um, with Blake's work. Not knowing, um, though, that the the KGB had basically set this whole thing up, they'd they'd given Blake a uh, a Soviet official he could recruit, and you know therefore increases standing with um, his um, uh, Peter Lunn and the folks back uh, back in London, and, and Blake uh, accordingly is is viewed as one of the the best uh, best uh, operators that Peter Lunn has. So he's he's been effective for some while uh, while the tunnel is operational. Once the tunnel ends, he he, he lays low, but then he resumes his uh, espionage once it's clear that the Americans um, and the British don't suspect him as having any role in the discovery of this this tunnel. So he um, he in effect becomes a one man tunnel. He operates in Berlin for another three years, and um, according to some uh, you know some of the Stasi and uh, KGB documents that that were later produced. Uh, Blake effectively rolls up several agent networks that are um, 
that the British had operating in uh, in East Germany. He um, he gives the KGB a complete rundown of how the, uh, the SIS station in Berlin works, all the personnel, the officers. He also uh, betrays hundreds of uh, agents who are working for the British. These are primarily East Germans in the different ministries or jobs, mostly low level, but all people that are are providing information to to the British about uh, the Soviet uh, Soviets and what they're up to in Eastern Europe. So he does an enormous damage to, to British intelligence for for years. But uh, over this same time period, um, he started a family. His his wife, uh, Gillian, who uh, had also been an SIS secretary in London, had come with him to, to London. They they'd uh, had uh, two children, and Blake by now uh, is starting to have some second thoughts about this espionage work because he's he's kind of loving family life. He's been doing this now for. Um, you know, really since 1953. And by, you know, 1959, he's eager to get out of Berlin and see if he can get out of espionage altogether because he feels uh, some pressures and his wife doesn't have any idea about what he's what he's doing. And finally, in, in 59, they, they're sent back to England and Blake is very excited because he's going to be given a, an assignment to study Arabic in Lebanon. And he views this as a potential way to get out of Espionage, you know, the, they want them, uh, they, they, the British at this point, this is post-Suez um, crisis, have come to the realization that they need better intelligence uh, operation in the Middle East, and they, they see Blake as someone who can help them do that. And uh, But Blake's idea is to, is to use the uh, Arabic and somehow try to find a, a job in the private sector. He's even thinking about working for the oil company, so he manages to put his Marxist um, uh, love of Marxism on hold for a bit. Uh, as he as he dreams up these job opportunities, but he's uh, he, he they arrive in uh, Lebanon in 1960 September of 60, and then he's um, he's doing quite well in his course in early 1961. But uh, unbeknownst to him, uh, there are now some uh, some red flags that are being raised about uh, uh, Blake and and his uh, and his work, and this comes from a, um, a Polish military intelligence officer who begins passing on information to the CIA uh, that points to a, a Soviet penetration of of um, British intelligence. And at first, um, you know, Blake is, they do a cursory review and they, they consider Blake above suspicion. So it, they decide it can't be Blake. And um, he goes on and eventually the British decide that maybe the um, Soviets had managed to break into a safe that that gave them access to some of the NATO secrets that uh, George Blake would have had access to. But um, the, uh, the the Polish agent uh, uh, who defects uh, Golanewski eventually provides more evidence that points to uh, Blake being the source of these documents. And in April of 1961, he's uh, he's lured back to London by SIS. You know, on the pretense that he's gonna, he needs to discuss his next assignment, he's Blake is kind of suspicious about this because he's in the middle of his course uh, studying Arabic. He's doing quite well, and he doesn't understand why they can't wait till the end of the semester to to do this. But he checks with the KGB, and the KGB uh, is con his uh, handler in in Beirut gives him the clearance to go. They don't think there's any danger, 
And uh, once he gets back to London, he uh, finds himself being interrogated by uh, Harry Shergold, who was uh, uh, the investigator who kind of put together the the evidence that uh, that Blake was a spy. For three days, uh, Blake denies everything, and uh, they don't really have any uh, hard evidence against him. It's all circumstantial, and, and Blake is thinking he can probably get away, and that's what Shergold thinks too. But then Shergold tries this new tack, and he he says, "Well, we know George why you spied for the Soviets. Uh, it's because they tortured you, and and uh, now they're blackmailing you. They forced you to do this." And and you know Blake has this this ego of being someone who's above nationality and someone who's who's spying only for ideological reasons and this offends him and so he he just blurts out and he goes no no i'm doing this voluntary you know he just like spills out the whole thing and and uh for the next hours and hours he 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 basically confesses everything he's been doing for the last decade which is a lot there's a lot of damage to to go over this includes of course the the berlin tunnel also uh you know a number of other operations and sis is, is just of course in turmoil about this. And the CIA and Bill Harvey, of course, aren't too happy when they hear about it. And uh, Harold McMillan, the, uh, the British prime minister, has to break the news to uh, to JFK that, uh, you know, the Berlin Tunnel and a number of other operations were compromised. Also, this uh, this um, memo, which I found in the, uh, the Kennedy um, Library, uh, only fairly recently declassified, uh, was prepared by Alan Dulles to give to President Kennedy and and Dulles asked that uh, he asked the the president's um, officer or military officer to destroy the <laughs> the documents after Kennedy had read it. Fortunately, they didn't. At least from my perspective, I was glad they didn't destroy it. But um, it talks about you know Blake betraying the tunnel, but it also hints that um, it doesn't name it, but it hints that um, Pyotr Popov, who was the GRU officer who was giving. Um, had been an enormously uh, important source to the CIA in uh, in Berlin and uh, later also in Vienna and then uh, but primarily in Berlin and, and in Eastern Germany in general that he was um, actually a, a spy for the Americans and because Popov is arrested and it could have been um, because of some information that Blake passed on to the KGB. Also, Penkovsky, who uh, at this point, is is only now beginning his espionage work for the uh, the Americans in in April of 1961 when, when Blake is arrested. Um, Blake had given the um, the Soviets information that Rory Chisholm, an op- uh, an officer for the SIS in Berlin, was working for SIS. So when Chisholm is sent to Moscow, and his wife is works as a handler with Penkovsky, uh, they are both under surveillance and. That soon puts Penkovsky under the, uh, um, the the radar of the Soviets, and he is arrested in October of uh, of 1961, uh, just as the Cuban Missile Crisis is underway. And he, of course, the information that he had provided uh, concerning Soviet missiles was very critical, probably in avoiding a, a, a nuclear war. But it's quite possible that both of these uh, valuable spies were betrayed, at least in part, based on information that that Blake passed along. Blake is given uh, a 42-year sentence, which was the longest sentence uh, passed down by a British court in modern uh, court history, 100, uh, previous 150 years. He's he's assigned to Wormwood Scrubs, which is a uh, Victorian-era prison in Western London. 
which, uh, as it turns out, doesn't have the greatest security in the world. You know, Blake, obviously, the uh, uh, the damage he's, he's done has is, is caused uh, quite a bit of a stir. For the, the British, uh, one perspective why the CIA didn't get more angry about it was that the um, the Cuban Missile Crisis uh, and also the Bay of Pigs invasion, which follows in 1962, breaks. So uh, the, the Americans are sort of distracted on some of the uh, <laughs> the fires on their own front. But in any event, um, Blake manages uh, over the years that he's at uh, Wormwood Scrubs to make a lot of friends. It's uh, it's kind of to his surprise too. But um, a lot of his fellow prisoners felt that he'd been given a uh, an overly harsh sentence. Um, this was uh, you know by British standards uh, you know quite unbelievable forty two year sentence. And he he has um. Blake's personality is very um, ingratiating. He makes a lot of friends in prison. You know, he helps, you know, a lot of them write their letters to their attorneys. He teaches some prisoners French. He teaches others Arabic. He uh, He's kind of like the, the comforting shoulder that a, a lot of the younger prisoners uh, rest their, their head on. So he's a very popular guy. And over a period of five or six years, Blake comes to realize that the KGB is not going to try to spring him. They're not going to do a spy trade for him because Blake has already, you know, confessed to everything. So they don't really have a the Soviets don't really have a reason to to, you know, trade him for um, someone like Gary Francis Powers. Um, they trade for uh, Rudolf Abel instead because Abel hasn't hasn't confessed. So Blake decides he's going to have to work his uh, own way out of prison. And one of the uh, fellow prisoners he recruits is an Irishman named Sean Burke who um, is very anti-authoritarian, a bit of a poet, uh, drunk type of guy. And uh, <laughs> um, Bork uh, takes up this this job um, very happily. He's, he's released from prison in 1965, and he immediately goes to work trying to um, to free Blake. And they've come up with this plan where, where uh, Bork, uh, with the help of some other prisoners who have since been released, will raise some money. And they're going to um, get a uh, hideaway apartment near Wormwood Scrubs and a getaway car. And um, they're going to have a, uh, they managed to smuggle a walkie-talkie into um, into the prison that Blake is able to use so he can communicate with Burke. Burke would uh, sit outside the prison walls. Um, there was a hospital, Hammersmith Hospital was right next door. So he'd, he'd pose as a, as a um, you know, a visitor getting ready to go into bring flowers to to a relative and um the, the whole escape scheme uh, revolves around this idea of uh, throwing a ladder a rope ladder over the east wall of the prison which is near the hospital and um like man- managing to scramble over the wall and to the into the uh the waiting getaway car and unbelievably enough i mean this is a pretty amateur operation but um you know, Wormwood Scrubs did not have great uh, security, and that's the wall they want they want to cross over. And this is the the, the ladder that uh, Burke and several other of his conspirators uh, build. They use knitting knitting needles as the uh, the legs of those uh, of those uh, rope ladders, so it can give some support. October 1966, they wait for a night when uh, Saturday night when the prisoners, most of the prisoners, go off to another hall to. Um, to watch a movie and you know it's kind of a, a quiet time at the prison and uh it's a it's a dark rainy night and burke um is going to park outside the the prison wall and throw over the, the rope ladder 
Now, all kinds of things go wrong. Bert gets caught in traffic, and uh, he's late getting there. And you know, Blake manages to slip out uh, one of the windows that a, a accomplice had, had broken a couple of the, the cast iron rods that held panes in. And he's able to slip out this window and um, up on this little building here and then hide in the recesses of this building while he waits for uh, Bork to, to throw the, the ladder over the nearby um, wall. But it takes forever for, for Bork to do that. He, he encounters a security guard with a dog and he encounters some uh, young couple who are necking in their car and he has to chase them away. But, and Bork uh, finally throws the ladder over and Blake at this point was convinced the, the whole thing was off, but he, he managed to scramble over the ladder and um, he breaks his, uh, his wrist and hits his head jumping down to the other side, but they, they jump into the, uh, into the car and uh, make their way off to the, the hideaway flat. And then they have this um, the problem of what to do with Blake, because he's now the most hunted man in, in England. This is obviously a huge story that this notorious Cold War spy is free. They undergo numerous, numerous close calls of being caught, but uh, uh, not to go into all the, uh, the details, but finally, um, the Michael and Ann Randall, who are anti-nuclear activists, who had um, Michael Randall had served some time with with Blake, they uh, put together a camper van that they they retrofit with a secret compartment, and they hide Blake in the compartment at Christmas time, uh, nineteen sixty six, and they have a couple young children with them, and they um, they drive across the um, you know, take the ferry across to to uh, France to Belgium and France with with Blake hiding in the uh, in the back in the secret compartment, and they make their way to Berlin, where where Blake is is able to um, rendezvous with his Soviet contacts and eventually fly to to Moscow. And this is a, a visit that his um, his conspirators helped, who helped him uh, get to uh, Berlin. Uh, they visited uh, Blake in 1990 when uh, when they were. Uh, Randall's and the Pottles were were put on trial for helping uh, Blake. They were, uh, as a side note, they were acquitted on that charge. So Blake spends the remainder of his year somewhat disillusioned in in uh, Soviet communism in Moscow. Uh, it doesn't take him too long to realize that uh, communism hasn't worked in in uh, the Soviet Union. Although he remains a, a communist, he feels that the the Russians haven't done a good job of it. Um, he uh, spends most of his time at a dacha outside of uh, Moscow where a lot of KGB folks live. And, you know, his, his value to the KGB continued for years afterwards because he was able to continue to identify MI6 SIS officers and also talk about the techniques for generations of Stasi officers and KGB officers. So he was a revered figure and Putin would, would call him on his birthdays to uh, thank this lion of, um, of uh, intelligence for, for the, the Russians. And he dies uh, just uh, last year. Uh, was, uh, it was forced, um, you know, his, his view of all this was that uh, you know, he, he had done the right thing. His, his only regrets was, uh, was having to leave behind his English family. Um, he started a new family while he was in Moscow. And, uh, Again, a pretty remarkable life uh, when you think of this guy was held in, you know, as a prisoner by four different regimes. If you count, uh, you know, the Nazis, Franco's government, the Brits, 
who am I forgetting? There's somebody. Oh, the North Koreans. <laughs> so definitely an interesting life. And uh, in my view, one of the, the most dangerous and most damaging spies of the Cold War, George Blake. So that wraps up my presentation. I'm happy to take some questions. Steve, that's a fascinating story. I understand that while you were doing your research, you actually were able to make contact with um, George Blake. How were you able to do that? Actually, right where I'm sitting now in this cabin where I, I work um, here in Montgomery County, um, you know, I, I felt like I, I had to to reach uh, Blake somehow. And I wasn't that optimistic that he would speak with me. And I didn't want to go through official channels, you know, go, th go through Russian intelligence because that, that was going to go nowhere. Uh, I poked around. I don't I can't tell you uh, where I got it, but I got a phone number for uh, for Blake and I just cold called him. One morning, you know, when I knew it would be evening Moscow time, it was at, actually he was at his, his dacha. It was the number to his dacha where he was living most of the time. And, you know, he just got on the phone. And I just introduced myself, explained that I was working on a you know, book about the Berlin Tunnel. And, you know, <laughs> would he uh, ask him a few questions? And and he, he we, we had a, 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 a decent chat and uh, I was able to get a, a couple of quick questions in about, uh, you know, Peter Lund and. And how he had what he had done to uh, protect himself from um, exposure at the time that he was uh, working both at Section Y in, in London and later in, in Berlin, and, and some of what he uh, he understood about what the uh, the information that the the Americans and the and the Brits were getting from the tunnel at that time. But it wasn't a very lengthy interview, and I wanted more, so I um, he he basically begged off after a few minutes and said, well. Nice talking to you, but I've got to go. <laughs> so I, I decided um, when I was doing research in Europe, uh, the, in Berlin at the Stasi archives, and also doing interviews with with folks, I decided I would go out to Moscow and see, try the same technique in person. And um, I had directions to his dacha, which uh, were very vague. You know, basically involved. You know, take the um, take the train to to this town. And get out the uh, the back entrance of the train station, and if you look straight ahead, there will be kind of a, a dirt road leading to the right, and follow that across three more dirt road intersections, and then you'll see a bunch of trees. It was one of those types of directions, but I gave it a whirl, and I was uh, working with a, um, a translator from uh, who worked with the Washington Post uh, in the Moscow Bureau and also the Associated Press, and we were asking folks if they. You know, because we, we didn't seem to be finding the place. I had a picture of what the uh, the dacha looked like with that, that green green building with the gabled roof. So I knew what I was looking for, but we weren't seeing it. People insisted they'd never heard of him. And uh, this one one older gentleman who was working in his garden, you know, said, no, never heard of him. As we started to walk away, he he said, um, well, you might want to try that that house three three gates up to the left there. And, you know, sure enough, that was uh, the right place. and. Um, I mean, we knocked on the the gate. Uh, you could see that um, that picture how how high the uh, the wall was there. I mean, it basically was surrounded by an eight foot wall, which most of the dachas there were. They were very because a lot of KGB folks lived in that area. It was kind of a, a private compound. And uh, caretaker answered. We could hear dogs barking. As it turned out, I mean, the caretaker was very very friendly. Uh, I think we would have been allowed in, but Blake was sick in his bed at that that day, unfortunately. And, you know, he wasn't seeing anyone. His wife was away. I think she was off in Moscow. So when she came back, we called and she um, she agreed to let me speak to Blake 
once he was better, but that was a couple of weeks before he was better. And by then I was back in the States. So, uh, I had to do another phone interview, but it was, it was very uh, useful because, uh, I was able to ask him a, a number of questions about, uh, about the tunnel. And, uh, he was, you know, he was quite helpful. It was interesting conversation. He filled in a lot of the, the holes I had in, in my understanding of what had happened. And, you know, I got to hear his version of events. He's very, very engaging fellow. I think he was always, always pretty, pretty good at uh, winning, winning people over to his side, which is one of the things that made him such an effective spy. Well, it really is a fascinating story, both the Berlin Tunnel and George Blake. The book is Betrayal in Berlin by Steve Fogel. I want to thank Steve and the Washington Post for yet again, just uh, a wonderful story. Uh, thanks very much, Jim. I appreciate that. 